Well, I have promised that I'm going to do not only the textual background of the New Testament, but also the question of canonicity. I've already had one somebody say to me, what is that big word? So we're all going to practice it. Repeat after me, canonicity. Canonicity. No, that was not good. Canonicity. That was good. Thank you. And which is, how did those books get in the Bible? And this is actually a, uh, a line of attack against the Bible and against Christianity that is often uh, wrongfully very effective today, but it's a good question. We're not afraid of these questions. There's wonderful answers, and I intend to give them to you now. So how did we get our Bible? A quick guide to? That was great. What scholars you are. It's a pressing matter. Now, this is quotes from the Da Vinci Code, which is rather passe. It's kind of nice that the Da Vinci Code is passe now. Oh, that was that's so, you know, 2010. But the Da Vinci Code is an example of the kind of thing that comes into culture that makes claims that are plausible and they get traction. And it's like, oh, those Christians never thought of that. Well, and so in the, in the Da Vinci Code... Uh, One of the characters says, the Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. And you're going, well, no, Pastor Phillips didn't tell me that. You mean Constantine the Great? Just no is the answer, but whatever. But these questions are being used. Uh, In the second century, Christianity was not an institution, but a collection of warring factions. This is a very common argument. Each had its own gospels, each claiming direct descent from Jesus, each accusing the others of heresy, homosexuality, and the like. In the 4th century, one group or group of groups won out. And the people now known as the proto-Orthodox, because once they won, those doctrines became orthodox. Of the many gospels circulating, they chose four, called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now this is the male power, it's always male power brokers, in a smoke-filled room determining history uh, out of their own corrupt motives. And we now think it's this holy thing when it's really a smoke-filled room. Did I mention yet? A smoke-filled room of power-broking men decided what was going to be in the Bible. Well, let's talk about that. As with the other agnostic gospels, the gospel of Judas, the gospel of Judas, a copy was found in 2019. So there was articles about this. As with the other Gnostic Gospels, this mere existence shows there was no such thing as fixed doctrine or there wasn't at the beginning. That's the argument. Or that great cultural analyst and theologian Stephen Colbert. So this means that the Bible is a big fat lie and I'm an idiot for believing it. Uh, That is what's in the culture and in many respects gets traction. And so claims are made about the New Testament. The church created the New Testament. Male power brokers determined which books were in, which were out. There never was any orthodox doctrine in the beginning. We cannot know who Jesus really was or what Jesus really said since later people put the words into his mouth. The texts are so filled with errors we have little idea what the original doctrine said. Now, we covered the error argument uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. But here's the question. How do we answer these questions? How did we get the... We're going to look at the New Testament particularly. And the reason for that is, uh, by the time of Christ, the Old Testament canon was settled. So there's not that much argument about the Old Testament canon because that was 
But by the time you get to Jesus, that was a done deal. It's the New Testament canon is the question. And how did we get these 27 books in the New Testament? So what we're going to do today, we're going to trace a dissemination of apostolic teaching. We're going to look at the situation at the end of the first century. We're going to look at second and third century developments, the church fathers and the New Testament manuscripts. And then we'll look at the fourth century consolidation and canonization. That looks very scintillating, but it actually is. Well, first, let's look at the dissemination of apostolic teaching. Here's what actually happened. And let's do a case study in the book of Colossians. How did the church in Colossae, Colossae receive the book of Colossians? Because it was written to them. And it was carried to them by the messengers the Paul gave the letter to. Colossians 4, 7, and 9. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. I sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him on Esimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who's one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So let's look at that. Why is Colossians in the Bible? Well, because the Colossians church got it from Paul. Well, how did other churches get Colossians? Well, we read in Colossians 4.16, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from Laodicea. Now, there's questions about what is the letter of Laodicea. I think probably a lost letter that the Lord did not want in the canon because we didn't have a copy of it. Uh, it could be Ephesians. I, I don't think so. But here, here's the point. So the people in Colossae in the Lycus Valley, remember what, about a year and a half ago we were studying Colossians? Uh, uh, about a two-hour drive today in a bus up from Ephesus of the Lycus Valley. You have uh, the, the, the three cities, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. Colossae. And so they, Colossians get, you know, one day these apostolic delegates show up at church. Hey, we have some new visitors today. I'm Tychicus. Of course, they know who he is because he's a... In fact, he, uh, he founded that church, if I remember correctly. And, oh, I, I have a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to you. Well, why don't you read it? And there was a day when Colossians was read, like the original copy of Colossians, was read aloud in the church of Colossae. It spread because then they passed it to other churches. They would have made copies, I'm sure. And then they, they passed it to other churches. Paul told them to do so. And so the most plausible answer about how it was that the book of Colossians spread as, as an apostolic letter that belongs to the New Testament is that those who possessed it shared it with others. Well, well how did the Christians know that Colossians was authentically from the Apostle Paul because they got it from him. They got it from the hands of people they knew who brought it from Paul. They knew. Now, here's a question I want to ask. When did the church in Colossae decide that Colossians was a Bible book? They never did. They received, it came to them that way. It came to them as the word of God by inspiration through the apostle Paul. They received it as such because that's what it was. It never was anything other than that. There was never a smoke-filled room where the people in the Lycus Valley said, you know, we're going to, Colossians is in. No, no, it was in the moment it got there. It, it, it came to them as the word of God. That's a useful case study of how this works. Now, you have a process in the first century whereby, particularly when it comes to the gospels then, 
where you go from oral tradition to written scriptures. I'm sorry for a very busy slide. Uh, I broke up many of the other ones. I should have broken this one up. Uh, originally, the gospel and the apostolic teaching was spread by the apostles themselves. They went around preaching and teaching in person. Most of it, they were preaching from Old Testament texts. And a lot of the Old Testament is Old Testament texts explained. Romans could be subtitled, What the Old Testament Really Means. And there's all these citations from the Old Testament. They're preaching from the Old Testament. And so they're doing that. And as the apostles moved around in their missionary labors, it became necessary for them to communicate with their former churches. A great example is First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, in Acts 17, uh, in Acts 16, Paul goes to the man of Macedonia. He goes to Philippi. In Acts 17, he goes to Thessalonica, and he's there for a while. They get beaten up. They get driven out of town. But because of the power of the Holy Spirit, a church is founded. He goes to Berea. Thumbs up on the Bereans because they read their Bibles uh, uh, and demand to know, uh, you know, to be shown in the Scripture. And he goes to Athens in Acts 17. You have the whole. Uh, uh, the sermon that Paul preaches there. Well, he tells us in First Thessalonians that he wanted to know how they were doing. So he sends Timothy back from Corinth. He's now in Corinth now. Paul doesn't like Corinth. I wouldn't either. But he, no, he doesn't, he doesn't like it. But he sends Timothy back because he's anxious about, he knows there's a church in Thessalonica. So Timothy goes up, Timothy comes back and gives Paul a report. It's a really good report. First uh, Thessalonians is a very upbeat letter. It's a wonderful letter. I preached it 10 years ago here. Uh, and, uh, and so Paul then writes back to them this letter of apostolic exhortation, instruction, and he's got things he wants to clear up. And so the reason you have these letters, you have this oral movement, but now they have to communicate in writing because there's only so many apostles and they're, they're trying to maintain the churches. Now, when it comes to the gospel, originally the gospel story, the life and ministry and death of Jesus, was spread as an oral tradition. Now, by the way, if you ever looked at old oral cultures, it's really fascinating how much and how accurately they can disseminate, preserve over generations, uh, particularly narrative forms. It was not at all uncommon for a high-quality Jewish rabbi to have memorized the entire Old Testament. That was like the, the minimum. I'm on the examinations committee of our presbytery. You know, it's not, the, we don't require the memorization of the whole Bible, but they were, they, they were raised that way. And they, they had, they had the techniques and they, and they, and so you had all, you had this narrative and they would pass it down entirely orally. Uh, but as the apostolic generation grew older, the 80s, 60s for the most part, it became clear that written gospels were needed. And so four gospels were written, two by apostles, Matthew and John, and two under apostolic supervision, Mark and Luke. It's widely, the early church believed, taught that Mark was really under Peter's supervision. Uh, and of course, he was close to Peter. And then Luke, we know as Paul's co-worker, that Luke is, is operating under Paul's matrix. Now, uh, three of them are done in the early 60s. And, and, there's, and, they, and it's a whole another subject. But it's pretty clear that Mark and Matthew, one of those came first, probably Mark. And then the other one was written knowing, because there's a lot of same identical wording. And then Luke is, a, you know, that's fascinating. The largest book in the Bible is Luke. What a fascinating book. Luke Acts is 27% of the New Testament. And, and it's, it's all, but then you got probably 85, 80, 85 AD, 
John's gospel comes along, but you have these written gospels because it was so important for obvious reasons that the life, death, and the sayings of Jesus be authoritatively uh, 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 preserved. Now, these gospels, it's important to say that there are not four gospels. Uh, what, what is, what's the actual formal name of John? The, the book of John in your Bible, what does it say? The gospel according to John. It's not John's gospel. Mark's gospel, Luke, it's, there's one gospel, the gospel, uh, and then you have the version according to Matthew, the one according to Mark, the one according to Luke, the one according to John. Now, all the evidence shows that these apostolic writings, the gospels and the epistles, were regarded as scripture from the earliest time, from deep within the first century. So you have the gospels being produced, by the apostles or under their authority, you have the apostles themselves writing these letters to the churches. All the evidence says immediately they were embraced by the church and received as the church as the word of God. Now, a great example is 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, where Peter says this, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist of their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. The Greek word is the graphe. So Peter, even during the apostolic age, before he dies around 64, he's referring to Paul's letters as scripture. That's the word used for the Old Testament. The word he uses there for scripture is the word for the Old Testament. It's, it's the Bible. And so that you have the, that's how these things come about. And immediately they're understood to be inspired by the Holy Spirit. And they are scripture. Peter himself regards it as that. Well, you fast forward then to the end of the first century. By the end of the first century, all of the New Testament books have been written. Uh, John, Revelation is probably as late as 95. John lives a really long time. But by the time you get to 100 AD, all the apostles are gone, and there's no new, all the scriptures have been written. But they are not universally known. Uh, and that's, that's what is going to lead to the fact of the, the canonicity is the entire church's acceptance of them or acknowledgement of them. There are some that are known regionally and poor. By the way, the church is being persecuted, so they can't have a Bible convention. Oh, the Romans would have loved that. <laughs> Bible convention in Caesarea. All right, there they are. No, the, by, uh, by the way, the smoke-filled rooms are caves where they're hiding from the Romans. Uh, anyway, they're not, you're not a power broker if you're being fed to the lions in Rome. But anyway. Um, meanwhile, there's other non-canonical books that are very valuable and that are being, being widely circulated. The Shepherd of Hermas is an excellent book. Uh, my favorite uh, non-biblical first century writing is The Letter to Diognetus. That's a really good book. Uh, the Didache, uh, the Epistle of Barnabas. And that's what you'd expect, right? People are writing Christian literature. There, there, other people are sending, there's letters of exhortation going on. Now, what's interesting is, from the beginning, there's a distinction made between Scripture and, hey, the shepherd of Hermas is really good, but, you know, it's not apostolic. 
And so there's books that are widely, kind of like Pilgrim's Progress. That, that's a big book, but we know it's not the Bible. That was that way at the end of the first century. Meanwhile, the heretical counter-gospels that they're always talking about, they had not yet been written. So the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, all these, these Gnostic Gospels, they don't exist in 100 AD. So at the end of the first century, you've got the epistles, you've got the Gospels, you, you have the scriptures, you have edifying, and they are edifying, non-canonical books, which we still have copies of today, and that's it. And the church knows the distinction. So when someone says, well, you see, there were all these other counter-Orthodox movements, not in 100 AD there were not. Uh, there, now, you, remember when we were studying Colossians and Second Peter, uh, there's the, the, the Gnostic, there's false teaching in the church from the beginning. That's certainly true. But it hasn't developed to that level. These documents have not been produced really for many generations. At the end of the first century, you have the, the scripture and the non-canonical books. Now, the status of the churches, the churches are throughout the Roman Empire by the end of the first century, and there are several influential centers. They, they end up being called the patriarchal sees, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome, and none of them was dominant. So there is, my point is, there is no power center, there's no hierarchical center to the church in 180, 180 AD. Obviously, the Jerusalem movement was a big deal. Uh, James the Just, who wrote the book of James, he's there. He was earlier, at least. Of course, Antioch, which was a major city, two million people, uh, uh, up around the coast. Uh, that was a, a, remember, that's where Paul and Barnabas were sent forth, and, and Peter was there for a long time. That became a, a major center. Uh, Rome, being the, the imperial capital, and of course, Paul and Peter ended up there. The whole Roman thing's a big deal. And then Alexandria had a large Jewish population prior to the time of Jesus. And out of that group, a large church founded. But there's no one, there's no papacy. There's no one church that decides these things. And the Roman persecutions are becoming widespread and intense. So they're not, communication's difficult. And there's no gathering of, of leaders. The point of which is, so that's not what produces the canon. It's not an organizational entity doing it that produces the canon. Well, here's the assessment. At the end of the first century, the apostolic writings are strongly accepted where they are known. And the truth is, they are not known everywhere. If you're in Rome, you probably don't know about James. If you're in Alexandria, you probably don't know about Hebrews. Hebrews was, I think, written from Rome to the uh, Palestinian uh, uh, Christian, uh, Jewish Christians. It could have been the other way around, but I think it's that way. But if you're in Alexandria, so you go, someone goes, oh, man, have you read Hebrews 11? The, the Hall of Heroes are like, I've never heard of Hebrews. And so in Alexandria, if you ask them in 100... Give us your list of the New Testament books. Hebrews is not going to be on it. And that kind of thing is happening. There are non-apostolic writings that are appreciated but are not accepted as canonical. And uh, uh, Matthew Harmon says this, By the end of the first century, there are collections of Paul's letters circulating among a large number of churches in the ancient world. So by the end of the first century, there are... This is why it's a second century church that invents the codex. What's a codex? 
the book. The convenient, leather-bound book, like Jim Gold, that's a codex. That's an invention of the second century church right around a little over 100 so they could carry Paul's letters around. And they had, there were really two, there's the Pauline letters and you're going, well, why Paul? Well, you know, because it's awesome. <laughs> and they knew that too. And then the four gospels, there were the gospel books and there, you know, the Bible's a library. And so there are portions of the library bound. Um, uh, many churches would have possessed copies of at least one, if not more, of the Gospels, and they were recognized as authoritative scripture for believers. Well, let's talk about what the consolidation that's going to take place in the second and third century. Uh, in the second century, you have, it's very interesting when you read uh, some of the documents that were important to the church, the first of which is going to be the letter of Clement. Clement was the leader of the Roman church, right around 195 to 105. He's actually the presbyter of Rome. He's on the list of popes. But he himself is, he's, frankly, he's writing to the Corinthian church on behalf of the session of the Roman church. And he writes as the elder from the plurality of leaders uh, with an exhortation to the Corinthian church. And he writes that about 95 A.D., uh, you have Ignatius of Antioch, dies 117. Ignatius is a, uh, is an apostolic father. He's actually captured by the Romans. He's being taken to Rome to be thrown, to be killed in the arena, which he was. And on the way, he stops. He's a very holy man. He stops at seven different churches. And while he's there, he writes letters to them. And so we have the collection of Ignatius's letters. And then you have Polycarp of Smyrna dies uh, 135 to 155. And he writes a letter to the Philippians. And, uh, and there's an account of his martyrdom. Now what's interesting about these letters is that they're filled with quotations from the New Testament. They're, and, and it's what you'd expect. Uh, Clement, the church father, is writing an exhortation to the church. And, and it's filled with, with statements from Jesus, from the Gospels. Statements from mainly Paul from his epistles, and it's sent as the Bible says. So it's 100 AD, it's 95 AD, and you're Clement of Rome, and you're writing to the Corinthians, and you're exhorting them with Scripture, and the Scriptures you're using are the ones that are in your Bible. Pauline letters and Gospels. Same thing with Ignatius. He's quoting the Bible as he's giving exhortations. Well, if he's quoting the Bible in AD, the New Testament Bible in AD 117, that suggests that they knew that they treated it as scripture. You know, I love Polycarp because according to church tradition, which I think is a good one, Polycarp of Smyrna grew his youth pastor, his pastor when he was a boy was John the Apostle. He, he was the bishop of the, of the church in Smyrna. But he came from Ephesus, where his childhood, he was discipled by John. And so you're going to go, well, how do you know what the Bible? And it's like, no, the, the guy was in John's, where did you read the Gospel of John? Like, I was sitting there while John was writing it. <laughs> you know? So he didn't make a decision, we're going to include that in the Bible. It, it, it never was anything else to him. J.B. Lightfoot shows that they proved that Christianity was Catholic, not Roman Catholic was universal. 
There was one church that recognized the scripture from the very first. The great facts of the gospel narrative, the substance of the apostolic letters, formed the basis and mold and expression of the common faith uh, from early on in the second century. Now, you later get other writers. Uh, Justin Martyr. Oh, Justin Martyr is really good. The martyr part is given to him after he's killed for his faith. And he writes a lot of, he's the first kind of philosopher Christian writer. Uh, 165 AD, he dies, and he writes, he's a highly educated, upper-class Roman who's a Christian, and he writes his apology to the emperor, arguing on why the emperor should stop persecuting the Christians, and he's going to give an argument for that. My favorite, maybe my favorite second century document is, uh, who here has read Dialogue with Trifo the Jew? Uh, Justin Martyr is doing Jewish evangelism. And he's, it's one of the, that document is still one of the great Jewish evangelism documents because he's, he's, he's actually recording his dialogue with Trifo, a Jewish unbeliever, as they're discussing whether or not Jesus is a Messiah. And guess what he's doing? He's quoting the New Testament as the Bible in these books. Uh, he quotes them as scripture. In fact, he'll say, as the scripture says, he'll quote the Old Testament. As another scripture says, he'll quote the New Testament. You go, well, there is no New Testament. Well, yeah, but the books of the New Testament were there. Uh, Tatian, uh, 120 to 180, he wrote the Dia Tesseron. It was, a, it was the first of many bad attempts to harmonize the four Gospels. Now, if you're trying to harmonize the four Gospels, that you be, then, then, well, then those are the Gospels. Dia Tesseron, uh, uh, in Tatian, when he's doing the Dia Tesseron, he's not going, I don't know, what that, which... Which, 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 which of the Gospels are the real Gospels? Well, he knows, everybody knows what they are. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four Gospels. And the Diatessaron is the four Gospels badly harmonized. There's problems with that. Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexander, Origen, we're now getting into the third century, all base their works primarily on the four Gospels and the Pauline letters. Marcion, the heretic, uh, it's, it, Marcion's fascinating in the 85 to 160, so you're in the 140s. You know, the Marcion story, I, when I was doing church history, I talked about it. He's a rich guy who comes to the church, I can't remember where, it must have been Rome, and he made a huge financial donation. And so they rewarded him by making him a teacher in their churches. Then they went, oops, <laughs> he's like a major heretic. And he didn't like anything that was, that was he didn't like any command. He, oh, he'd have fit in so well today. All he liked was justification, sanctification, boo. You know, it's no, don't commit, don't, don't talk to me about, oh, if it's obedience, it's legalistic. And he cuts them out of the, he publishes his own Bible with all the commands out. What's interesting is, what books did he mutilate to create his own Bible, he mutilated the books that became the Bible, because that's what it is. He didn't mutilate the gospel according to Thomas, because what's the point of doing that? It's not the Bible. He's attacking the Bible, so he's going to attack the real Bible. Uh, and when, then you have the moratorium fragment. It's, it's kind of small, but we have a document from the end of the third century, uh, end of the second century, I mean. 175, 178 A.D. It's a list at Rome of the authorized books that should be considered biblical in the New Testament. On that list are four Gospels, the Book of Acts, Paul's letters, Jude, 1 John, and Revelation. 
So 21 of the 27 books in our New Testament are on that list. There are no, nothing's on that list that is not in the Bible. 80% of the New Testament's agreed on. Now there's reasons why Hebrews is not on there. So there are some books that, they, that whoever did the Moratorium Fragment didn't know about. But it shows you, and you go, well, that's one, that's a long time. Actually, it's not long at all. That's very early in the process. And already you got, you got an 80% agreement uh, even before they've been able to get together on these things. It, it shows from earliest times there's a strong recognition of these New Testament books. Now, there were three criteria of the, of the early church for recognizing authoritative scripture. One is orthodoxy. It must conform to the message of Jesus that was passed down to the church. Now, and again, let, let's say that you're in the church of, uh, of Philippi. And it's 70 AD, and you, you know, you're discipled by Paul, and you know the gospel. You, you've been taught it by the apostles, and you know the doctrine. If somebody shows up with a document that says it's all wrong, you're not accepting it. And so orthodoxy is a test. It has to be orthodox. Second of all was ap- apostolicity. It must have been written by an apostle or someone who was close to and under the authority of an apostle. So don't just be showing up with your own letter going, hey, I'd like this to be in the Bible. You know, why can't the male power brokers in a smoke-filled room let my book be in the Bible? Are you an apostle? Well, no. Are you right? Now, now, not all the New Testament was written by apostles. Luke's not an apostle. Uh, yeah, but he's an apostolic delegate of the apostle Paul. There's this apostolic matrix. And you've got to be in that matrix. That's what's going on. And then, ultimately... As they're dealing with this at the end of the third century, it must be a book of the Bible that is wide. It's recognized not merely locally. You don't have your your Alexandrian Bible, and we have our Antiochene Bible, and you've got your Roman Bible. No, no, that's not the way it's going to work. There's one Bible, and so it was the whole church recognizing them. Um, now, it's, it's around this time that you start to get these... Uh, these Gnostic Gospels, these false Gospels, the Epistle of Barnabas. Well, Barnabas is interesting. It's actually an edifying Christian document in the second century. And the Moratorian Canon lists it as excluded because it was written in our time. That's, that's very interesting. So you're at about 175 AD and you're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. This a, actually, I find the Epistle of Barnabas boring. I mean, it's just, you read it, you're like, well, that's not scripture. Uh, but but they're like, you know, people like it, but it was like written 10 years ago. So it shows you the, the connection of the apostles is necessary. You go, why is it called the, the epistle to Barnabas? Well, you're not going to name it. If you're trying to get something in the Bible, you're not going to name it the epistle of, you know, of, 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 you know, I'm trying to think of a non-offensive name of Dabo or something. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to persecute my, my injured Clemson fans. Right here. The, uh, but, uh, or, you know. You're going to make it a biblical name. The Gospel of Thomas is first mentioned by Hippolytus, 225 to 235, as heresy. It's not mentioned by a church, an earlier church father. So, so here's the argument these guys are making on PBS. These are the shows they run Easter week. And these are things that show up in the magazines. Well, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, why wasn't it in the Bible? It's not even mentioned by anybody uh, prior to 222. And it's denounced by the church as heresy, which it is. 
The Gospel of Judas is a late 2nd century Gnostic text. It's denounced by Irenaeus, Bishop of Lyon, as a fictitious history. We didn't even, we knew it existed, but we didn't have a text until 1978. Gnostic Gospels like Thomas, Judas are excluded because they're not Orthodox, they're not Apostolic, they're not Catholic. That's like 0 for 3. Uh, so it's not like there were these competing orthodoxies. And then at some point in the game, one fact, that's the narrative, right? You have these competing orthodoxies from the beginning, and then one group won, and they determined uh, that's just completely fictitious. You have an original orthodoxy arising from the apostles, and it's reflected in all the church writings of that time. Later on, these heresies come in, and the church goes, no way, pal. That's not the scenario they're saying. Let's do a case study in oral tradition and talk about how, because you go, well, let's take Irenaeus of Leon. You go, I mean, I mean, Irenaeus of Leon, Rick, the guy dies in two, 202. So who cares what he thinks? I mean, he has no connection to the apostles themselves. Well, let's see. Let's use the U.S. Civil War. A soldier is 20 years old in 1865. He lives 75 years. He dies in 1920. So now you have a guy who fought in the Battle of Antietam, and he's alive in 1920. There were lots of those guys. His grandchild is born in 1900 and dies in 1980. Now you have someone then who is the who knew for 20 years, grandpa, who fought in the Battle of Antietam. Uh, does that guy have a connection to the Battle of Antietam? Yes. And you have a direct information. You know, so the event took place in 1865. In 1980, 115 years later, you have uh, a direct transmission of information. There's only one level of separation over 115 years. And that's why you, know, you, have, you can have a long period of time. But people are like, well, they don't, who knows? No, they do know. His grandfather, it's 1980, you're going to go, you know, I don't even think there was a battle in Antietam. He's going to go, what are you talking about? My grandfather was wounded in the battle. You know, I've seen the wound that he got from that notorious Yankee guy who shot him and stabbed him over the cannons, you know. And, and don't tell that guy that there was no battle of Antietam. And you go, well, it's 115 years. But, you know, that's not long. That's my point. Let's look at Irenaeus of Leon. Let's start with John the Apostle. He is the disciple of Jesus. He's young when Jesus calls him. And so on the Last Supper, he's the beloved disciple who lays his head on Jesus' breast. John the disciple. He lives a long time. He lives and he dies about 95 AD. He's pastoring. He's the head of the church in Ephesus at that time. Polycarp of Smyrna grows up in his church, is discipled, by John the Apostle. Irenaeus of Lyon is discipled and taught by Polycarp. Polycarp dies in 155. And so you have an event that takes place in 30 AD, namely Ish-Ish, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And you have a guy who's alive in two, 202. And you go, well, I mean, and, and so the scholars will say, we don't, even know, we, we don't even know if Jesus existed. Well, Irenaeus knows. Because he was converted and discipled by Polycarp, who grew up in John the Apostle. So you've got 172 years, and there's only one intermediary. 
to the eyewitness account of it. Now, my point is that when Irenaeus writes against heresies and says, look, the gospel of Thomas is heresy, the gospel of Judas is heresy, he's not just some random person venting his opinion. This is a guy who's part of a living legacy uh, uh, with one intermediary between him and the apostle himself. Now, in my case, it'd be World War II. I knew my grandfather in World War II. I sat there and looked at the photo. And so if you come to me and you go, you know, we actually lost the Battle of the Bulge. I'm going to go, you know, my granddad was in the Battle of the Bulge, pal. And so it's just, stop. Well, that's what happens in, in, two, in 202 when these heretical gospels come in. It's not that John Irenaeus of Leon is a power broker and he decides his faction is going to win. He's like, stop. No. And, and he knows why. There's one intermediary between him and the event of Jesus' life and death. Well, let's go to the 4th century when the formal canonization takes place. The, 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 the agreement of the church, that this is a new te- our 27 books, takes place in the 4th century. Now, it's greatly... There's a big impetus for this in Domitian's persecution. You know, Domitian's a fascinating guy because he's a great emperor. In fact, all the worst persecutors were great emperors because they're the guys who, you know, who were motivated enough to do it. The Christians were a threat to cultural unity. They were trying to get the ball rolling, and so they persecuted him. But one of the, and it was the worst of the persecutions, but one of the things that Domitian did was he went after the scriptures. He was burning the churches. He was arresting and killing the priests. And he was just trying to destroy the scriptures. Well, guess what the church did in response? They hid the scriptures and they treasured the scriptures and they copied the scriptures. And so the, the, the backlash of, of, of Domitian's persecution is the, the, the reverence for the Bible, for the New Testament. One of the great events of all history, 312 AD, Constantine the Great at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, uh, he... Uh, is converted to Christ. And a lot of people say it was a bad thing. Well, whether you think it was a good thing or not, that was, for the people of the time, that was incredible. 200 years of official persecution, they're underground, they're being burned, they're being thrown to the lions, and then suddenly the emperor is converted to Christ. It's, it's spectacular. Edict of Milan, uh, 3, 313, and now you can have those meetings. <laughs> now you can hold a, con- now you can go, okay, everybody bring... The, the scriptures that they have. And they have those. The Council of Nicaea. And so finally, you know, the people in Alexandria, as an example, go, wow, what's that? It's a, it's a letter to the Hebrews. Really? There's a letter to the Hebrews? Is it any good? Is it any good? Is that, you never read Hebrews? And they're like, so it's not like they decided, well, Hebrews, but they, they, just, they realized it. They discovered it. In his ecclesiastical history of 325, Eusebius, he puts three categories at that time. And here's where they were. Uh, accepted were all the Gospels, the book of Acts, all of Paul's letters, Hebrews by them is in, and First Peter, 1 John, and Revelation. Here's what they weren't sure about yet. James, Second Peter, Second, Third John, and Jude. Now, I, I do want to say, with all respect to these great books, you got most of the Bible in there. I mean... You got all of Paul, the Gospels, Acts, Hebrews, First Peter, First John. 
And it's not surprising, the, the letters that are most disputed are the most situational. Third John, remember he's writing to that pastor. And second John, he's writing to the beloved lady. He's writing to a congregation. These are the ones that have, would have gotten the less, least spread. Second Peter, we don't even actually know exactly who he wrote that to. It's, he's right before he dies. Jude, again, it, it seems more obscure. And, and, and then they rejected all these other things that never got in the Bible. Well, by, the, by 367, the Easter letter of Athanasius, who's the champion of the Nicene party, you have an official list that then becomes the final canon. All 27 books of the New Testament are on that list. Now, so, so how did the books of the Bible... Here's the question. The Roman Catholic Church will say, for instance, that the church decided what was in the Bible. The Bible rests on the authority of the church and that the church created the, the, the canon. Well, we deny that, and it's categorically not true. At no point did the church create the canon. The church received the canon because it's the word of God. Go back to that example from Colossia. The church in Colossae did not decide that Colossians was scripture. It was scripture. They, re- they recognized it. And so there's this process by which the whole church recognizes this is scripture. This is the word of God. There's, a, there's this process we've described. But at no time does the church claim to create the canon. Rather, and with a rather conservative process, as you would imagine, they recognize the canon of the New Testament. And so you have the final recognition of all 27 books of the New Testament. Now, a believer who's indwelt by the Holy Spirit can tell the difference by reading it. If you go, you know, Pastor, I'm going to be rebellious. I'm going to go to, my, to the bookstore. I'm going to buy one of those Gnostic dogs. Okay, it's going to be boring. I'm just telling you it's going to be boring. And, and yeah, you're going to read it and you're going to go, oh, do I have to finish this thing? I'm just telling you. You're going to go, y'all, this ain't scripture. And you're going to. And I have a copy of the lost books of the Bible. Well, they're never in the Bible. And I think I got it for $2 at a used bookstore or something. And it was a waste of $2. But I need to have said I've read it. And you're like, read the Gospel of John. Then you read this stuff. And a Christian hears the shepherd's voice and recognizes the false. Now, the upshot of it is that we can be certain by this process superintended by the Holy Spirit, that the Bible, the New Testament was not created by power brokers. There was not, in fact, a competing orthodoxies from the very beginning. One side won out and they kicked the others out. There was an original orthodoxy. Of course, it came from the apostles themselves and their writings possessed by the church. And those persecuted churches, they treasured those and they propagated. When they wrote to each other, they quoted those books of the Bible. And it took a while. And notice, the the letters of Paul, the Gospels, Acts, most of what we would call the core New Testament was never in any doubt. What, the Muratorian Canon has 22 out of 27. There are some books that were, that were more local in terms of their provenance, where they were known, that it took a little while for them to be recognized. But the church has always had these books as the New Testament. Your New Testament is the, it's a library of, 
of gospel writings, these records of Jesus' life and especially his atoning death, these epistles, these letters from the apostles to the churches, and then the apocalypse of John, the book of Revelation. These are the documents that from deep in the first century were the attestation of the apostolic faith. Jesus Christ commissioned these apostles to go and spread his word and to teach and to lay the foundation of the church in his written word. And we have those documents. And you are not, neither you nor I, decided that they were the word of God. We didn't decide that they were canon. They decided that we were scripture. We were Christian. I didn't create them. They created me. Isn't that your experience? The Bible made you. You did not make it. And so what a treasure. What, I, I teach you this because there's these attacks in the air, but I think it strengthens you, your marvel and your wonder at the treasure we have leather-bound uh, with maps, gold edges around the end. Well, it's a precious book, the living and enduring word of God. Father in heaven, I pray this is informative uh, to our folks. And we thank you for the marvel of how you've worked in these ways. And cause us, next time we pick up our Bible, cause us just to look at it and say, wow, wow, look what I have in my hand. And Lord, uh, what's particularly wonderful about it is not merely that this was these were the documents written by those great apostles, but no, even better, Lord, its true author is your Holy Spirit that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You have given us your word. Oh, how we love it. Make us devoted to it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.